Well, welcome. It's, uh, it's, it's Scout Sunday, it's Communion Sunday, there's lots going on, uh, and you are welcome to join us. We are in the process of following Paul in his second missionary journey, and as wherever Paul would go, we're going to stop and we take that book, that city he's, in, he's writing to, he's working in, we're going to explain. And so we're in the book of Corinthians, and so uh, join us as we're setting up um, our series in the next three or four months to learn about the people of Corinth. And particularly, I'm interested in this book because I believe, this is my opinion, that there is no other book in the New Testament that corresponds so perfectly with what we are going through in America. It is the American book for us at our times. And so I want to get into this this idea of looking at several things that Paul had to deal with several things that we have to deal with, and they just coincide. But I'm calling this the worldly, the worldly baggage, the fleshly biases, and the battles among the brethren. They were boasting. But this is Corinth. And to understand the story behind Corinth, we're going to get into uh, looking at certain uh, ideas, and, but to put them into a context that you understand, I want to share some things that you know kind of relatively, you may know this, but you know the Olympics has started. You know there are five colored rings in the Olympics uh, that are going on now. Why five? You know? Why, why five rings? Anybody know? There are five continents. She's, she gets on jeopardy, so... Uh, yeah, the five ring, five rings represent the five continents, and so when you think about going into certain symbols rep- representing certain things, okay, here's another one for you. See if you can get this one. We're in Greece, and the flag of Greece is the symbol that it has. You know, uh, there's a cross on that flag, and Mark was in Greece for a while uh, in service, and and there are nine bars. So why is there a cross, and why are there are nine bars? This is the double jeopardy question. Uh, anybody know? Anybody familiar with the Greek? Well, part of the answer is, is because the Greeks uh, went to an Eastern Orthodox Christianity, and there's the cross. But the nine bars, the nine bars, the blue bars, represent something that we honor and boy, this is going to be fun when we get into these comparisons. Uh, they stand for the word eleftheria. And it's the nine Greek letters for the word freedom. And that's why those bars are there, nine. But the idea of there's representation in these symbols. And there's also going to be in this book a misrepresentation. Have you ever been... Have you ever had anybody misrepresent you or dishonored you and say things about you that weren't true? And you know how that feels when you get misrepresented. That tension, there's anger, there's things that are going on that are happening there that are happening in relationships today. But you don't want to misrepresent things. Even even our schools will tell you that you want to avoid misrepresenting. So accuracy is important. You hear that there are biases and there's, there's a, 
a way of thinking about data that you can misrepresent data. You can lie with statistics. And if you're an honest scientist, if you're an honest, honest person, period, you have to accept the facts as they are. George Orwell said, in a time of universal deceit, telling the truth is a revolutionary act. The idea that we're going to misrepresent and, and go with some artificial or alternative truths. The problem is, this is the problem that's going on in Christianity in Corinth. The Christians were misrepresenting Christ, and they were misunderstanding uh, Christianity and misrepresenting them to the Gentiles. Two examples. And, and, and I want to share these because it's so easy for us to do because we don't know how to read this text because it took place 2,000 years ago. And so when you read a text, let me give you just a little side note about reading the Bible. Uh, this morning, uh, I spent time, and this is a perfect time to bring this out, uh, in the book of Corinthians, when we're talking about communion, when you take a passage of Scripture and you read it, as I read about the communion, I added this one today. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and of the blood of the Lord. Now, I don't know about your understanding, but what does that mean? If there's a misunderstanding or a misrepresentation, when I was a young believer, I, would, I was taught that if you take communion and you were in sin, you were not worthy to take the communion. So you had to examine yourself, confess your sin, and that, that way, as the bread would come by, if you weren't right with the Lord, you shouldn't take communion. You ever hear that? You ever done that? I mean, that was, I was told, don't take communion if you are in sin. You are taking it unworthily. Folks, that's not what the passage says. But when you take a passage and lift it out of context, and you bring it into our context, you can destroy and distort that meaning entirely. And so there are many times I remember thinking as a young man, I can't take communion today. And I would forfeit that time of worship with Christ because I thought my sin was keeping me from worship. What that text, if you read it that way, is just a distorted view of the Bible. And we distort it so easily because it doesn't mean looking at your personal life and, and, and are you worthy or not to take the communion. If you were taught that way, you have been misled that way. Because what this text intended was never to say that message. It never meant it to them. It never will mean it to us. But we have a wrong understanding. What that text means is that the Gentile Corinthians who were going to uh, the temples and they were drinking, lots of drinking going on. And if you got drunk and then you came into the church and you come to take the communion because you were drunk. In an unworthy manner, you weren't taking it serious because you were drunk. That's the unworthy context, unworthy manner that that person in that context was doing. So he's saying, don't treat this lightly. Don't be so flippant because you need the communion. 
when you are in sin. And the whole point of the communion is, is the fact that God has taken care of that sin. The body and the, and, and the cup, the bread and the cup, means you, you really are under the same confession that Christ died for those very sins. And so communion is a way of getting the grace and being restored. But we've misunderstood that. Another passage, and Corinthians is full of these, what I call uh, uh, hallmark calendar verses. You take them out of context, and you, they sound spiritual. And like this one, now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And so, wow, that's what I want, freedom. And so when you take an American and you hear the word freedom, that has different connotations than what Paul intended in context that to mean. And therefore, when you misread Scripture, you don't hear the Word of God. You hear what you hear, and you believe what you believe, but you don't hear what God's Spirit wants to say. So we need some guidance. And so let me give you just a little tip as you read Corinthians, as you go into it. There are two things you have to understand when you read the Scriptures. And these are key, key, key. Did I say key? These are important that you have to keep in mind the context and the content in the passage and in the world that it was happening to. So the intent of the author. Context matters because how you see things and the point of view from which you see things, you're going to only see partially. And therefore, if you don't understand the context, and by context, we mean the historical, the sociological, the economic, the political, the religious, all that was going on, the geographical, all the background information that you need to have as you intelligently read the scriptures, it will affect the way you see what you read. The second thing you got to keep in mind is the text itself. The written text, as you understand it, as you read in the Bibles, the modern Bibles, has things in it that weren't in the original Hebrew or the Greek. For example, there weren't chapter titles, there weren't numbers, and so the numbering system came in from the 1200 from Steve Langdon. And uh, they had these numbered verses. And so you can scoot through a paragraph and pick one verse, 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things pass away. Behold, all things become new. Let's take that one. You lift it out and say, well, I, can, I understand that if I have alcoholism, if I become a Christian, Christianity will get me out of alcohol because the old things pass away. I don't want pain in my life. I don't want my ex in my wife. I don't want my, my rebellious kid. I, those, those problems I want to pass away. That's what that passage means. If I'm in Christ, I become a Christian. Christ will take care of all my problems. Is that what that means? No, that's not what that means. There were, did mean that because Paul wasn't writing to our situation, our context. But when you go to that number verse, you lift it out of context. And so here's your tip. Never read a single verse. Never read a single phrase in isolation. So when you read, read in chunks. Read in paragraphs. Because the idea that you have to understand, to understand 
the content and the context is how you are approaching that scripture. Content matters. And the idea for content is you have to say, what's the point? And, and the point is what you're going to chew on. And content matters because if you, if you get into the scriptures and you don't get the big idea, you say, what's inside that? It's kind of like garbage in, garbage out. It's like what you put on your sandwiches, what you're going to get. So you want to read, what's Paul saying here? What's John saying here? What's Peter saying here? What's David saying here? Read it in paragraphs. Don't read it line by line. Get the paragraphs. And therefore, as you get into this, you understand that there are many things going on in the text, many things going in the context, and many things going in this context in my heart. So for Paul, as Paul goes into Corinth, he's got a lot of people who aren't readers. And so they're listening to people, but the people that Paul are listening to he describes in the first chapter, he says, Listen, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards, and not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth, but God chose the foolish things of the wise to, uh, of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. And as he's thinking about the context of Corinth, there were a lot of slaves in Corinth. There were a lot of free men from Rome in Corinth. There were a lot of Romans. There were a lot of Jewish people in, in Rome. But there were a lot of uh, Stoic philosophers. And there were the Epicurean philosophers. There were lots of people. We looked at last week that, that with, for Paul, he's in a, a pagan, uh, not not dominantly influenced by the Jewish. They're in a, 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 an outpost of Rome. And the problem is, for Paul, he gets into a group of people, as he says, do you not know, in First, uh, in first Corinthians 6, he says, do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, or swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. This is the makeup of the Corinthian church. There are a lot of people who are of a socioeconomic lower class that did things to maybe survive. We don't have their stories in print. But they would turn to the God's for answers. And as it says in 8.7, he says, uh, Not all men have this knowledge, but some being accustomed to the idol until now. Accustomed. Used to. This is familiar. We are, you know, we're Apollonians. We worship the God of Apollo. We worship Zeus. We worship Poseidon. There were God's uh, and when Paul was stepping into this context, he says, you know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to the mute idols. All right. It's a context that makes no sense to you because you're not out worshiping a statue. You're not worshiping a, a mythology. 
But they were. And their context doesn't fit our context, so we just kind of pass over that. And you'll miss the point. Here's the point. He says, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified, you were changed when Jesus Christ came into your city and you became part of the Christian movement. Now, the idea that culture is influencing them and what they were influenced by their culture, they're going to bring into the church as baggage. And therefore, there's lots of things in this book that are that are still in America today that you wouldn't understand. We're going to look at those things. But one of these is an interesting, I'll introduce it here and we'll explain it when we get into this chapter on sexuality. Asclepius, the god of medicine and healing. What city was he from? Worked in? Why is Corinthians uh, bringing out this uh, in the issues and sexuality, which I'll get into. Asclepius was the god of medicine and healing. He was the son of Apollo, and according to the myth, he married a woman, a mortal, called Koronos. He was killed by Zeus because he had this power to heal. And the healing, uh, healing of a human was a threat to the gods. Humans were threatening to the gods. And so Zeus killed him with some lightning bolts. Uh, his mother abandoned him, so he was a motherless uh, demagogue, and it was believed that he could even raise the dead. Now notice in that picture, he's got a staff, and around that staff there is a certain animal. Can you see it? Sure. It's this guy. Well, not this one, but you'll see the snake because the snakes in Corinth were considered powerful, magical, and therefore in the temples, often you would see in the healing temples of the Asclepion, there would be lots of six-foot-long snakes going around. They were non-venomous, but they believed the snake had magical powers. For that reason... America Medical Association, the military have adopted this symbol. Now, how that got onto American culture to believe in a pagan system of healing through snake oil. Maybe that's where the idea of the snake oil salesman came in. Well, the idea that culture is going to affect you. You won't understand this because you're not in Corinth. We don't do this, and therefore we're going to miss this point. If you have traveled overseas and you have been to some of these healing temples, you go to the temple, and customarily you will either bring food as a thanks, as a as a as a great way of expressing gratitude, and you would either give food to the priest or to the temple. And in some places around the world, those temple offerings become sacrificial offerings to the gods, but also become the food for the restaurants serving the public. Now, would you go to eat a food that's sacrificed to idols? You see how, how, how far away we are? We don't do that today, do we? We don't have that influence because it's not, we don't, we're here in 2022 in America, in the Western world. We don't offer sacrifices to a food 
And then we don't turn around and sell it. But some people were accustomed. And they could buy meat sacrificed cheaper at the temple than they could in, in the marketplace. Well, they were so accustomed to that, it was normal. It was natural. It was daily lifestyle. Now, I know this. So let me put you in a position that maybe, again, you'll never think about this because this is not your context. This is northern Japan. This is where I lived in, in uh, Aizu Wakamatsu. And when you go build a house in Japan, you buy the land, and the first thing you do is you bring in the Shinto priest. And the thing that the priest does is bless your land. And so here you see a little uh, ceremonial temple set up on the property that you're going to buy. And this little uh, temple, you offer fruit, you offer sake, you offer these uh, prayers. But they're blowing in the wind, those things that are hanging, representing the spirit. And then you have a Shinto priest come by and they will bless it. Or your car. Or a new school construction building. Or new business. My friend bought a house. My friend was American. He married a Japanese man. I'm sorry. He was American. He married a Japanese woman. And uh, they built this house. And my friend was telling me that as a Christian, his wife was not a Christian. She was Shinto. And so they bought this new house, and he invited me to come over to the ceremony of the blessing of the house. Because his wife said, the priest has to go into every room and bless the corners of the room because demons live in corners in Japan. So, well, Christian... Do you participate in that? Is that kind of strange? It's not what we do. It's not our context. And therefore, you don't understand how that's daily, everyday life. Now, we have different kind of idols and gods. There's one more from Japan I'd like to share because this is always fascinating. Lots of reasons why, but this is a good thing about the sumo wrestlers. If you've ever seen this, it's a fascinating sport. But when you get down to it, the referees, if you've ever seen these, are Shinto priests. You ever notice that? And so right in the center, you see that guy? He's got the, the blessing that he's going to put. In, and they're on the dohyo there where they're going to end up doing the battle. And before they start, there's a huge ceremony. And it's a, it's a solemn, sacred ceremony. And you watch. It's impressive. Um, and when the two sumo wrestlers come out, there is a ritual that they're accustomed to. And the ritual is they, they reach into this bag underneath by the foot and they throw up the salt. And the salt is a ritual to purify the dohyo because the dohyo, if you don't understand what sumo is all about, sumo is a religious offering to the gods. You don't see that. You don't hear that. But if you'll notice, if you back up far enough, you'll see that above every sumo ring, there is a temple. And this is just like the gladiators, just like the Greeks. They're offering the sport up to the gods. Well, this is culture. And when Paul goes into this Greek culture, he's bringing in what Moses had shared back in 
taking out of Egypt culture, hear, O Israel, the Lord is one. The Shema of Israel, there's only one God. There are not many, many gods. There's only one God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your strength. And then you know this commandment, don't you? From the Ten Commandments, Exodus 23, you shall have no other gods before me. Well, now, if you're in Corinth and you've got 30,000 gods and you've got 300 temple, healing temples with snakes running around and you've got a pagan system where you're accustomed to eating food from these. Can you imagine this? And Paul's going into this group and he's saying, for us, there's one God, the Father from whom all things come, came and from whom, for whom we live. And there's but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. But in the Old Testament, remember that Israel forgot that one God and began to mix with other gods. And that after they forgot God, the whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors. The next generation grew up, and they neither knew the Lord nor what he had done for them. <clears throat> so they forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. And that aroused the Lord's anger. Why? Because God is not ecumenical. God is international. There's only one God, and you want me to believe in a myth or a pagan God? You want me to share the throne with him? No way. So for Paul going into Corinth, he had real work to do. And what Paul would say to these Corinthians is, you are immature. You don't understand. And like Peter, he says, therefore, you need to rid yourself of all the malice and all the deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander and every kind. Like newborn babes, I want you to, to desire the sincere milk of the word. Crave it so that you can grow up in your salvation. And this was the problem. Corinth had not grown up in their understanding of the gospel. They didn't understand salvation. And the problem was, culture had changed the way they understood Christianity. Now, this is the problem that Corinth, the Olympics, Boy Scouts, and the church all deal with. You deal with it, I deal with it, in the sense that your culture is shaping the way you think. And you may not understand it, but if you accommodate, or if you try to adapt, and you try to amalgamate, what you're going to do is kind of mixing all the Play-Doh clay together and you're going to end up with all those colors coming out looking like putty. It's going to be ruin the distinctions, but it's a compromise. And that's the problem that's going to happen in Corinth. It's happening today. We are substituting and truncating the gospel. It's called syncretism. It's called mixing. It's called reframing, redefining, restructuring. And once you have that happen, you will forfeit the word of God for a substitute gospel. And when our culture thinks that you don't have anything relevant to say, the church becomes silent and culture becomes dominant. And that's the reason why when Paul looked at the Corinthians, he says they were misrepresenting the gospel. 
Because what was going on in their context and their relationship in that culture was that Paul started the church. Paul started the church in 50, 51, and was there for a year and a half. Taught them very well. Taught them about the cross. Taught them about the Spirit. Taught them about salvation. Taught them about the Messiah. Taught them about the Old Testament. Taught them about the covenant. They taught, he was there for a year and a half and started founded. And then he went over to Ephesus. And he was over in Ephesus for a couple of years. While Paul was over there, some people came in and began to influence the Corinthians. And when they, they were saying to them, well, you know, the Stoics have a way of wisdom. And we think the Stoics' wisdom is just to be rational, thinking, not be excessive. But then you have Socrates and Plato and the philosophical wisdom. Then you have the Epicurean wisdom. And then you had... <clears throat> you have the, the religious wisdom of the pagans. And here comes Christianity. Christianity is just one other alternative wisdom. It's another technique, another method, another model. But it's one of many things that you can go to the marketplace of ideas and pick it up as just one philosophy. The problem is this. Christianity, summarized in a, in a nutshell, begins with two words. The two words were from the man named Jesus Christ who said in Israel, follow me. It was a relationship. And when Christianity moved from relationship in Israel to Greece, Christianity became a philosophy to understand and argue and debate. From Greece, it went to Rome. And in Rome, it became an institution. And from Rome, it went to Europe and became a culture. And from, from Rome... Uh, from Europe, it came to America, and Christianity became an enterprise. We've lost, we've substituted those two words to follow me. Therefore, Paul would say, and let me go to the end, that Paul would say to these guys, you think it's just an optional deal. You can add Jesus to your pantheon of gods and mix it with your culture. No, 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 says Paul. Don't reduce and minimize Christianity to an optional religion that you can add. You could be a Corinthian and, be, and, and follow Christ and follow all the other gods because he had 30,000 of them. What's one more? You could be of Shinto and add Buddhism and add Christianity in Japan. You can, you can mix them all together. But that's not Christianity because Christianity is there's one God, one living Lord alone. And there's only one living God who died and rose again. No other God or goddess or philosophy has done that for you. And they were mixing it. They began to influence the people that Paul affected. And Paul says, you're walking like mere men, men of your culture. And so you are still worldly. And you have these biases. And you're missing the fact since there's jealousy and quarreling among you, this isn't the Christian way. And therefore, Paul would say, you're being influenced by something. If it's not just the world, it's by your own personal opinions. And therefore, he said to them, I appeal to you, brothers, that you all agree, that you come to that same place of aligning your thinking with the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul has work to do. This week, as you go into Corinthians, I want to tell you to read this context. Read chapters 1 through 4. 
because that is one unit of thought. And Paul is saying, you've got all kinds of trouble, Corinthians, because you don't know the wisdom of Christ. And because you don't know the wisdom, you're going to have conflict. You're going to have tribalism. You're going to have litigation. You're going to have people having ecstatic experiences, and you're going to misunderstand and distort. Well, they were misrepresenting the symbol of Christianity because they didn't understand the spirit of Christianity. Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom, not with eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power, made void. For the message of the cross for the Gentiles in Corinth is foolishness. For those who are perishing, it's foolishness. But to us who are being saved, it should say the wisdom of God. It says it's the power of God. Paul had to get them back in line. And so this whole idea of not letting culture dominate, letting your perceptions dominate, but let the Spirit of God dominate. Well, there's so much more to this. We're going to continue as we get into this because you are being affected by your culture. Are you being affected by Christ and the spirit of freedom that he wants you to have? How does that happen? What does that look like? That's what we're going to get into the next four weeks. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we, we know that you are the spirit and that you want us free from those things that block us from our own misunderstanding. Would you take these words, Father, and use them to really help us read and hear your word so that we follow you and be your disciples. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.